Yes, it is a sort of kind of real sword. This is actually my husband's, and that's a story. Um, when I was a girl, I collected hats. Uh, and the hat took me into another world, a character that I played and enacted. Several of my hats were military, an old West Point grad hat, a helmet from Korea, and I'd also inherited from my brothers various kinds of weaponry, especially BB guns, shotguns, a machine gun that made a real sound, uh, a Luger, um, you know, the typical girl stuff. Um, I played a lot by myself, and I had a recurring character that my family knows. What was the recurring character? Sergeant Dufo. Sergeant Dufo, yes. Uh, Sergeant Dufo was incredibly courageous, a leader willing to take an injury to save her men. Yeah, I think they were probably men. I don't know whether I thought that much about that. I remember one day during a heavy rain, traipsing through the gardens, my boots sinking into the mud of our garden plot, bravely marching my guys through enemy territory. I was also enough of a Catholic uh, to think that uh, I would manage to shoot my enemy in the leg and capture them. Uh, maybe I was an Anabaptist <laughs> even then, despite my weapon collection. As a kid, my life was lonely, unpredictable, and occasionally quite violent. This was true of my home, as well as the society in which I lived. Vietnam was at its height, and at school we practiced diving under our desks in case of a Soviet nuclear attack. Even then, that seemed fairly impossible, right? Um, but there you did. we did it anyway. Faced with what seemed like overwhelming circumstances, I wisely did what so many kids do. I imagined a story in which I was not the victim, but a hero. I enacted a drama in which I joined a community that faced this world and was not overcome by it, in a group who did good and resisted evil. So there are many options for such a thing. Um, this is one of them that has great appeal, right? Uh, as you just watch this sort of short clip, maybe. Um, think about what it's playing on, right? Uh, I have a nephew who went from being a sloth couch potato to being a Marine. Um, pretty amazing play, um, obviously appealing to our sense that there is something more to life, that there is good to be done, that there's a way of living in this world that is different than being a victim. So I wonder if for you this reminds you of anything in your context, something you enacted or imagined or a world in which you were taken up, maybe as a kid or maybe as an adult, in which you aren't, uh, you're facing overwhelming odds, right? but you manage to succeed, you're a part of a larger group. What are some of the things that we know or live into and dream about as a society and culture? What did you dream about or live into? There's some pretty obvious ones, I think, that come to mind. What are they? Sports. What is it? Competitive sports. Oh, competitive sports. 
Yeah, in my case, I didn't always come out as the um, top. <laughs> but yeah, for some of us, sure, living into a dream, being a part of a larger group, overcoming someone else, having meaning as being part of that group. What else? Any of you live in alternative worlds in some ways, as a kid or as an adult? There's some, what, what are ways that, uh, I don't know if some of you as psychologists are, are, um, know the work of, oh gosh, what's the guy's name? But he talks about fairy tales and the power of stories and why there are these tales that have a, a, a long-standing trend. What were you going to say, Deborah? Yes, I think it is. So what does Bettelheim argue about those tales, these fairy tales? So did any of you... Um, what are some, come on, what are some of the famous, most famous fairy tales that are made a lot of money recently? Lord of the Rings? Okay, great example, right? Lord of the Rings is this epic drama with lots of, um, say, Marine Corps kind of sensibility in some ways, right? But what's the story of the Lord of the Rings? What's the compelling piece of that? What's part of what makes it so appealing universally? Good wins, but what? The Hobbit is the hero, right? This little guy with furry feet who really never leaves, you know, doesn't want to leave the Shire, right? What Tolkien realizes is that we all have a Hobbit, right? As a Christian, he recognizes that the world is scary and that really, in the big scheme of things, we're all Hobbits, right? We're all people who feel powerless against the overwhelming odds we face. What other stories come to mind? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, right? Absolutely. What's the story in Harry Potter? Who's the, who's the person who rallies everyone? <laughs> okay, it's, your mom wouldn't let you read this book. Now, here's a fascinating thing, right? Um, so we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, right? I, I think there are... Um, why did your mom not let you read the book? Sorcery. Sorcery, right? Because you'd hate to think that there are actually powers and principalities and darkness, right? Those are going after us by, uh, through books like Harry Potter. Um, and I would want to argue, uh, what's another, what's a famous Christian, another Christian who wrote a whole series of books? Narnia, Narnia right? What's the story of Narnia? It's children, children who still dare to believe and dream that they can overcome the evil that is in the world. What all of these authors wisely know and what we as parents should celebrate in these kinds of stories and why as adults we should continue to read them is that there is something deeply true and I think gospel-ish about them. Because they say we know that when you look out into the world it is dangerous. Kids aren't idiots, right? They know it's dangerous. Kids know they are powerless. Kids know it looks bad. But these stories remind us that maybe there's a different sort of dream. Maybe there's a different way of living. And in my case, and in the case of every one of the stories you told or reminded us of, right? In the case of Tolkien and The Hobbit, what becomes one of the Harry Potter, Narnia? They never do it alone. They become taken up into a story in which they're joined to other people who make something else possible. And when we look at this text, 
Um, I'm going to focus on this piece. Uh, Josh talked some about the other pieces. But uh, what <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I read the text and I listened to Josh last week and I realized that really he had stopped right before this when he preached. And I thought, really? I'm going to get the armor of God? Because, I okay, I'll, what, what, Amy, what did you say when I said I got the armor of God? What did you do? Yeah, it's like the youth group thing, you know? It's the, um, and we don't mean that in a good way of youth group at Mountainside, right? We may mean more the sort of felt boardy sort of thing or whatever. Um, she actually, she did, she laughed. She goes, you got the armor of God? <laughs> like, just like that. Um, because for some of us, right, finally be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Verse 12 isn't often the one that's talked about a lot in youth group in some ways, right? Um, we like these other ones. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day and after you've done everything possible to stand still. So stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate. Put on the shoes, put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Take out your helmet. Right? And the sword of the spirit, which is... Oh. Which is God's word. So, when you read that, what are some of the things that come to mind or maybe an experience that you have with this text? Do any of you, did any of you have to study this? Or memorize it? <laughs> Your dad made you memorize it? So what did it... Well, of course, because you're an MK. Of course you memorize like all of Ephesians. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, so what did you make of this, Jordan, when you were a kid? Like, what did it... about winning, that's good. Um, yeah, so one of the, I mean, maybe others, did anyone else have a, a thought about this? Carla? Well, you told us, I mean, I, I also memorized this as well as Ephesians 6, as well as all of Hebrews 6 and 20. But um, I, I felt like in my church and youth group upbringing, we were acutely aware of verse 12 and the presence of darkness uh, okay. and evil. And like, I remember my siblings who were older reading this chapter, 
Uh -huh. Frank Peretti. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, so one of the things that I have to say when I hear people quote this is that when I do hear this language of powers and principalities in this present darkness, um, it feels what I would say is spiritualized. That is, it's not material. Um, it's suspiciously non-material, right? Um, By the way, where is he? He says this later, right after this, where is he? Again, he reminds them, I am. Reminds us? That he is, where is he when he's writing this? Where is he? Where Paul, where's prison, Paul? Right? Paul's in prison, right? right. So underscoring so your point. So what is really also coded, because maybe he really is talking about real actual rulers and authorities on earth. Uh, yeah, like the ones who have him in prison, <laughs> right? Um, so... I, uh, I think that's a great point, and part of what it comes up as you read this is that while it's armor, it's strange armor. The armor is the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness or justice, um, the belt of truth, right, girding ourselves, putting us on, putting on this garment of truth. What's the, what are the two things that are not sort of defensive in all of this? The sword, but the sword of what? Which is, which is God's word, right? Does that echo any other biblical text for you? One quite famous one in which there's a lot of violence. We sang it, actually, in several, a couple of songs this morning, parts of it. It has some of the most beautiful doxology in all of Scripture, and it is the bloodiest, arguably, other than Judges, maybe, the bloodiest, weirdest book. Revelation, exactly. How does the Son of Man come in riding on a horse already drenched in blood, and what comes out of his mouth? The sword that is the, right, it comes out of his mouth is the sword. That same sentiment that what is that which is sharper than anything is the word of God. Very different, as you note, Ed, than the kind of weaponry, perhaps, that I was enamored with uh, as a kid. What were you? So this is, this is part of why I find this text difficult to teach on, um, is precisely that sort of image, which on one level I think actually is right in this way, right? It's right that Paul is saying this is a real, this is a real thing. We do have to resist evil. It is, it is something real and it is present. 
And I think Mountainside gets that on a lot of levels. We certainly see that and we pray against that in things like immigration, right? We know it's not only powers and principalities, but it's powers and principalities that choke and squash people that we love and our neighbors. Um, there's also a sense in which that seems quite wrong, right? That this, this kind of, how is it that we hold on to a vision of strength that's also vulnerable, like Christ is vulnerable, like Paul's vulnerable? Um, I also have to say that I sometimes find it difficult to know what is this armor. So when I was reading this, I thought, well, it kind of sounds great, but what the hee-haw does it mean to put on the breastplate of righteousness? I mean, this is typical in some ways of the language of Ephesians, right? Which is so over the top sometimes that I'm like, you're so spiritual, I have no idea what you're talking about, Paul. It's beyond your imagining. I'm like, okay, but, but you gotta like give me something. Give me what, what is it, how do I begin to imagine? Um, what does he mean by these sorts of things? So I want to, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I think, uh, what I've come up with so far. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance, because we have a fair amount of time, I think, this morning. Um, I'm going to share some things with you, and then maybe we can talk a little more about this. Um, but here are some things for, uh, for us to think about. As Josh reminds us, right, Ephesians sets out this grandest of visions. A God able to do more than we can ask or imagine. A God who is father of every nation, who's overturned every power in Christ. But it's also a book of ordinariness. Be sexually faithful. This is what Misty was saying. Okay, there's this grand vision, right? But then Paul gets like super practical about what this means. Uh, Respect and honor your parents. Live into your political, social, and economic status, aware that those have been... Right? We read some about that today. And reordered because of what the God of Israel did in Jesus Christ. Recall that your ethnic identity, or in our case in the U.S., our racial ethnic identity, no longer separates you from others, that Christ has made us into a living witness of the gospel of peace. He repeats things here he has, uh, that have been said before. If you notice, if you actually, if we had time and you looked at each one of these, he's actually talked about almost every one of these things already in the letter. What is that gospel of peace? It refers to that wall being broken down. What is this strength? What is this devil? What's the temptation of the devil? Well, earlier he says, you know what the temptation of the devil is? It's that you let the sun go down on your anger. These are ordinary things that he's already linked in, and he's kind of giving this charge at the end. Um, there's other ways that the devil attacks us, right? By speaking unkindly or filthily to or about one another. So although this sounds really highfalutin, it's actually pretty ordinary. These are the ways we practically put on truth. To wield the sword of the God, word of God is to... Uh, not let the sun go down to talk with one another to work out our anger or our frustrations. Um, versus ways that I would have to say I normally wield a different sort of word. Um, my own tongue is too often what James would say, right? Which is a tongue is fire. Uh, I, my tongue is too often vicious. Uh, perhaps for others of you it's too often silky, as Paul puts it earlier. Um, a sort of dishonesty in both cases. 
Instead, we're to take up the word just as Jesus did, did with the tempter in the wilderness, right? We see how Jesus actually fights the devil with the word of God, right? He lives into that word. That word is the way that he guards himself against the temptation of other ways of being the strong man. He does not take up a sort of metal, but rather speaks and acts as someone who trusts in the ultimate victory and the goodness of God called our father or protector in the New Testament. In our context, I want to share with you as someone uh, of some of how I feel I need to put on the armor of God God has given me. Uh, this is different from ways various mechanisms of defensiveness. So interesting, right? I think I do actually wear an armor. That was part of what came up in reading this, right? It's not that I don't have armor. It's just that it's not this armor. Um, I shield myself not by faith, but by withdrawal. Uh, or I protect myself not through God's words, but by words of frustration or despair. Over the last several years, my heart and mind have been swept up into injustices and maddening, vicious patterns of violence against women and violence against persons of non-Western phenotype or certain skin tones or certain religious backgrounds. Like many of you, I hope that I am enacting in my own life alternatives to this. I'm grateful for men who come alongside me as partners and who, when they are helping me or asking me to help them, do so as friends and companions. I'm thankful for men and women who mourn with others and me the way shame engulfs us when we experience oppression or betrayals. I'm deeply grateful that our church sees the long-established patterns of a slippery thing called whiteness as an instrument for consuming our neighbors instead of loving them. We take up the reality that Robert Chow Romero recalled. The point of God's justice is to join us together in vulnerable communion with one another, breaking dull ruts of separation along lines of class, ethnicity, race, gender, orientation, physical or mental ability. But I confess that I find the fight overwhelming at times. Internally, I struggle to be hopeful, feeling the pressure of my own experiences of violence as well as those of others. I read the news, and I feel like I am covered in sliminess, as dishonesty, meanness, unkindness, lies, oppression, and anger roll over me like a merciless wave. I emerge from these not only clothed in sludge, but find it has seeped into my soul. Like a death eater from Harry Potter, it slips through the cracks, and sucks dry any dreams of a future without sexism, ethnic and racial division, and economic consumption that destroys God's creation. In this way, the seemingly external evidence of the powers of this present darkness never remain apart from the internal world of my most intimate space, my hopes, my longings, my desires. I find it difficult to breathe want to cover over my sadness with Netflix, exercise, food, or drink. I withdraw from friendships, and I dare not dream. And in this way, the seemingly cosmic way language of Ephesians is as close as my own heart. And yet Ephesians has spoken to people like me, who Paul says cannot imagine what God can do, who cannot grasp the power of God's love in Christ that cannot be stopped and will never cease. 
The hardest, deepest reality is the one of which Paul speaks and indeed explodes throughout Ephesians. The mysterious wonder of the power of God that is not merely out there, but in here. That God has given us what we need to stand in the gospel of peace. To live faithfully and truthfully in a world run amok by lies and violence. To remake a community without replicating the political and social mess that is our society. So by the time Paul comes to the end of his letter, he knows perhaps that people like me need to live among people like you. I need to be with the people of God who take up the sword of God's word every week, who put on God's just peace at this table, who remember that we are sustained by Christ's own body, by God's gifts, and not by our own abilities. This text about putting on the armor of God is an easy one for me to mock. Uh, especially for people like me who pride ourselves on complexity or regard religious language like this often as shallow or foolish or dishonest. Yet it is to me and to us that this final charge comes to take up God's defenses and weaponry. Because underneath my confidence in theological sophistication is just a girl who wants to know that the world will not overwhelm her. Who wants to find a place to stand that is filled with meaning, and with honor. I'm still that girl surrounded by violence, at home, in our homes, in a post-nuclear nation who longs to fight a good war, not one that pretends to be so, that's merely fueled by political power and pillaging. I'm still inside with a sorrow that can overwhelm me and that can make me exhausted when I contemplate engaging in any sort of fight. I ask you to join with me as people made one, as Paul reminds us, who have been taken up into a deeply good story, as Brad recalled. Instead of either writing off this armor to anything concrete, join me in opening yourselves to this text and to the Spirit's encouragement to you today. In preparation for the sermon, I've been thinking about each of these pieces of armor and where they go on our bodies. I've been asking God to help me figure out how to take it up. So for example, the helmet of salvation. I picked this one because I was like, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds great, but I have, what, what does that mean? So Paul's already told us in Ephesians that restoration to God is sheer gift. Remember he says, that you didn't earn this. Salvation is God's gift. God did it. Um, you might have noted, right, where's the armor come from? Do we forge it? He just says, be strengthened by this armor. It's already there. We didn't make it up. We don't have to create this out of nothing. So the salvation is a gift. What does it mean to place a helmet of salvation over my brain as a cover of my thoughts, for example. To put on my head that Christ has acted to restore me, offered me new life, placed me in a new community and family. I often actually think and perseverate on other sorts of things. Maybe you think about that a lot, but I actually don't. In my case, I think about the brokenness of my own family, I turn over in my mind the ways I'm probably repeating all this crazy in my own kids. 
I ruthlessly mull over ways I failed to be this new creation. I constantly think about ways my words hurt people I want to love, or I chew on things people say about me and my many failures in word or deed. What would it mean to spend a fraction of my thought life contemplating promises God makes about redeeming my mistakes, taking up my past into God's future, or about the depths of God's forgiveness of me? I do this, too, when it comes to thinking about justice and peace in the larger world beyond my intimate circles of friends and work and family. I turn over and over the merely stupid and often maddening dangerous incidents around race, gender, class. I worry obsessively over the cumulative effect of my society's divisiveness. In doing so, I feel the energy for proclaiming God's just peace draining away. I sense the joy of Shalom's reality and Shalom's dream slip away. What if I take up this helmet of salvation, put that on my head every day, recalling that nothing gets through to my thought life without having to encounter the wholeness that is God's salvation, the inevitability that is God's good reign, the unfathomable beauty that is this God's new creation. I need to meditate on and live into the reality that I live in a world marked by the strange evil of racial and ethnic strife, but that Christ has overcome this. Christ has joined our lives together in his own life. You can see how this might be true for each of the items up there, right? Um, the breastplate, a cover over the hearts, over the guts, over the core of ourselves, our affections, our longings, our feelings. How can suiting up with Christ's rightness God's unstoppable justice serve to protect this vulnerable part of all of us, right? Each of these covers kind of vulnerability. That that's the way we protect ourselves and don't lose heart or keep us from desiring too little. So I want to pause for a brief moment and um, have you think about for a moment each of these pieces of armor. It's a lot to kind of take in all at once, right? But as you look at this and you think, the helmet of salvation, is that what needs to be protected or put on for you? Is it your core, your heart, your guts that are too much exposed now, that are being attacked, maybe like me, that things have crept in there that do not give you life, that do not sustain you for God's kingdom? Is it the truthfulness? Girding, it's a great English word, that word in there is actually girding, right? You like take it off, put it on, right? Is it a lack of truthfulness? Is it that we've, you've forgotten who you are, who God is making you, the graciousness of God for you, for the neighbors, for world? Is it your feet that no longer move into a gospel of peace but are stuck in the mud of hopelessness? Is it that sword? Is it that other things come into your or out of your mouth than that which has been run through the story of God and the words of God? So take a moment to look at each one of these. Even faith itself, by the way, right, the shield of faith, in Ephesians is a gift. 
is it that you need to receive a gift, a shield from God for all those arrows of hopelessness, despair, anger, violence that are coming at you. So take a moment to think about which one of those do you need to take out of this room today? Just take a moment to bow your head or look at the text and we'll pause. Lord, by your grace, remind people of whatever this image is throughout the coming weeks as we finish up the sermon and maybe come back to this if there's time with the little people. Amen. So I hope we can return as individuals and as a church family to this text with all the gusto that Sergeant Defoe took up her helmet and sword of the past. This seems a fitting end to our exploration of Ephesians, a metaphor elastic enough to capture the explosive wonder and risky adventure that is uh, Paul's vision. Um, just as an aside, I think we do underplay this a bit at Mountainside. That is, um, that there is a kind of courageousness, a kind of, um, to, to, this is a very masculine metaphor, right? Um, traditionally masculine metaphor. And obviously, maybe this isn't right. Well, obviously, for me as a girl, the, the girly metaphors in a world overrun by violence, they, they went nowhere. Right? I was like, what? Nothing. Barbie did not seem to offer much of a robust, uh, you know, kind of nothing. And her arms, you know, this. Anyway. Um, so I, I, I invite us as mountainsiders, right, to to recognize that this kind of sort of masculine, brave, courageous, adventuresome language is who we are. It is who Christ is. Christ did do this. Paul was this kind of man. I am also called to take up this armor. You are called to take up this armor and be welcomed into a story and an adventure that is dangerous and risky but is possible because of Christ. Paul also reminds us that when we're taking up this armor, we take it up in ordinary, everyday ways, as friends, companions, children, laborers. The Marine Corps website says, Marines fight to win. When met with the adversary, every Marine overpowers challenges with perseverance to win battles. The core is right to remind us that we meet each adversity and must fight. But unlike fight knowing that the gates of hell cannot and have not prevailed against we ordinary saints. Unlike the core, we do not overpower by our own might, but rather as those who take up weapons and the protection of our crucified King and Lord who reigns forever and ever in heaven and on earth. May Mountainside take up the armor of God today as one of God's many gifts. 
May you be encouraged that your life is an adventure, however mundane or unimportant your own foot soldiering may seem to you. And may we witness together to the unlikely yet sure reality that God is able to do in and through this odd infantry more than anyone could ever ask or imagine by the power of Christ within us. So, I think that's in here. No. So I'm going to say the doxology that Ephesians gives us, that Paul says throughout Ephesians. Glory to God who is able to do far beyond all we could ask or imagine by his power within us. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. And all God's people said, Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.